Good morning. We're in James chapter 2 this morning. James chapter 2. We are in this uh, sermon series entitled, The Fruit of the Spirit. Today we're going to talk about faithfulness, and we're going to use James chapter 2 as our, uh, as our uh, starting point. But I do want to start, uh, as I've done several times through this series, by re- reading that passage in Galatians uh, that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So let's read that together. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Let's pray together. Father, you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. You are good even when we are not good. And as we consider today this text, we pray that, Father, you will transform our lives to be more like you. I pray, Father, that your spirit will just convict our hearts that you'll just guide and lead this discussion and just bless our time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to talk about the fruit of faithfulness. Uh, Faithfulness defined is, is loyalty, it's trustworthiness, it's courage. Faithfulness is reliability. It's not your fair-weather friend, right? But who are we faithful to? When we read this fruit of the Spirit, who are we faithful to? Is the fruit of the Spirit being reliable before God? Is the fruit of the Spirit spirit trustworthiness with our friends? I think James will teach us this from this passage this morning that faithfulness is truly both. Let's read that passage in James and just talk about what what he lays out for us. Starting in verse 18. Let's start in verse 14. I put 18 up there, but we're going to start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Consider our ancestor Abraham, who who was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith, his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete 
by what he did. And scripture was fulfilled. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, faith without deeds is dead. I believe that the fruit of faithfulness is the intersection where faith in God collides with our actions. And James gives us three examples of how that's true. He starts first with this example in James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, suppose a, a brother, uh, well, he starts with, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, someone claims to have faith but no deeds, can such a faith save him? He says, suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food, if you say to him, go, I wish you well and warm and well fed, but do nothing for his physical needs, what good is that? What good is that? Faithfulness is when I have food and I see someone who doesn't have food and I choose to share my food. That's what faithfulness means. To not share my food means I'm either a bad friend or I don't really believe in God. Whew. If I don't share my food, I'm either a really bad friend and or... I don't even believe in God. James is making it clear that you cannot claim to believe in God and allow your neighbor to starve. The Ad Council put out a series of commercials like 15 years ago. The quality was really, really poor on YouTube. I wanted to show these commercials, but it's really poor on YouTube, and so you're going to have to just picture it with your minds. One of the ads went like this. The camera, it zoomed in on some teenagers, and they were three of them, and they were hanging out by a car, right? And the narrator says, these kids almost had a community center. A contractor almost volunteered to build it. A carpenter was almost hired to do the work. And the rest of us almost donated to the fundraiser. And these kids almost stayed out of trouble. Pretty good, right? The one that really, like, punched me in the gut was a, a picture of, if you could picture this in your mind, the camera zooms in on this homeless man who's just covered up by blankets trying to keep warm. And the narrator says, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost bought Jack something to eat. Someone almost brought him to a shelter. Someone almost gave him a warm blanket. And then the narrator brings home the point. And Jack Thomas, well, he almost made it through the night. And that's heavy. That is heavy almost doesn't 
anybody. And James says if we are going to be faithful, we are going to bear the fruit of faithfulness, then our belief in the Creator God, the provider of all, has put us in a perfect scenario where we have surplus and we can help those who have a shortage. Faithfulness is understanding that the God of surplus takes care of those who have a little with ours. That's why in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, it says that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, the leftovers. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Did you see that? He connected the truth that he is God with helping the poor. Do you see that? He said, he gave them specific, specific, very, very tangible thing to do here. That when you're harvesting, which many of us don't do, but when we're working, leave some. Leave a portion of what you work for. Can you think about that? God took this community of slaves. Oh, hey, my uh, watch is trying to tell me something. God took this community of slaves and he freed them. He led them into the promised land. Now they are creating a new society. And God is saying that we shouldn't live like the world. The world is survival of the fittest. The world is reap every single inch of your field. I mean, you worked hard to prepare that soil. You planted the seed. You are harvesting the crop. You deserve every penny that you work for. But the God culture that he creates in Leviticus is still true today. It says, no, leave a surplus for those who have shortage. That's what faithfulness looks like in the kingdom of God. And that is the God culture that God has been creating since the Old Testament that is still true today. I could talk more on that subject, but we have three metaphors to go through this morning. I feel the same way, buddy. I'm almost done. James chapter 2, verse 25. He says, in the same way, consider Rahab the prostitute. Considered, she was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in di different directions. This metaphor is shocking. Think about the people of faith found in the Old Testament. Okay? James could have used so many people here to give a good metaphor for faithfulness to God. He could have used Abraham, which he does, but he skips over Noah, Moses, 
David, the judges, all the prophets. Instead, James chooses a prostitute as the example of faithfulness. In Leviticus, or I mean in Numbers 13, Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan before they conquered the land. The spies came back and told the people that the land was awesome. The fruit was huge. It was flowing with milk and honey. It was beautiful. But (coughs) the cities were fortified. The people who lived there were huge, and their armies were large. And only two of the 12 spies wanted to take that land that God promised them. And Moses was outnumbered. So God punished the Israelites and sent them to roam the desert for 40 years. Now fast forward to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua's the new military leader of the land. He sends spies into Canaan. And this time they stay with Rahab. Rahab hid the spies from Jericho army. And when they asked why, when they wanted to know what's going on, why are you keeping us safe, Joshua 2, 9 through 11 tells us. Listen to this. The words of a non-Israelite prostitute. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us the Jerichoites, so that everyone living in this country are melting in fear because of you. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt, we heard about what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. We heard of it, Our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Listen to this. Listen to this confession. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In Numbers chapter 13, 40 years earlier, Moses sent spies in, and they said, there's no way we can conquer this land. The people are huge, their armies are huge, their cities are fortified. Meanwhile, the people of Jericho were terrified. Their hearts were melting. Meanwhile, they heard about how their God parted the Red Sea, and they said, nope, we don't want anything to do with those people. You hear the irony that the people of God were unfaithful. Meanwhile, the people of Jericho were learning all about the real God. Whenever there is a natural disaster, the President of the United States always seems to go and visit And they're always dressed for the occasion, right? They're not wearing a suit and tie, are they? They've got their khakis on. They've got their sleeves rolled up. And it looks like they're ready to go to work. Give me a chainsaw, I feel like they want to say. 
rarely do we ever see pictures of presidents doing anything, right? That's why I love this picture of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy, oh, it's gone? It's a blank slide. Hey, there he is. Jimmy Carter was 95 years old in this picture. 95. He had just fallen the day before. That's why he's got a bandage on his face. And he's working for Habitat for Humanity. 95 years old, building homes for the less fortunate. I love it. Here's my point. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're a prostitute or the president of the United States. Come on. When faith in God collides with action, then we have faithfulness. When our faith collides with our actions, we've got to roll up our sleeves and get to work. That's what Rahab did. That's what Jimmy Carter did. That's what you and I are called to do, to roll up our sleeves and get to work. That's faithfulness. In the final metaphor, which is probably the most powerful, it's the second one he gives, the third one I'm going to give, it's James chapter 2, 20 to 24. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And this faith was made complete by what he did. And scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and was credited as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does not by faith alone. Now James says that Abraham offered his son on an altar, and that is the truth. In case you're unfamiliar with the story, you can read the whole thing in Genesis chapter 22. You see, Abraham was promised to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. However, Abraham and his wife were old, well along in years. His wife was barren, had never had a child. And God miraculously gives Abraham a son. Now, Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to listen to these words. To take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the, the mountains that I will tell you about. And then the next line in Genesis chapter 22 says, Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey and took his son to be sacrificed. Early. First thing in the morning, he saddled up his donkey. And we're told that he picked his son up, put him on the altar, and before he could sacrifice his son, God stopped him. He stopped 
gave him a ram caught in a thicket to be sacrificed instead. Abraham loved God, obeyed God over everything else. I'm sure Sarah probably had a few words to say. Come on. I'm sure that night was a long, long night. I'm sure his logic went something like this. God promised me that I was going to have kids, and I had a kid, and I was supposed to kill him. This doesn't make sense, right? It had to have been a rough night. I'm sure Sarah didn't want it. I'm sure his logic said something else, but no. He loved God and obeyed God no matter what. And Scripture says that he got up early and saddled his donkey. I don't think he went to bed. I also don't think that Abraham could possibly understand the layers to the story, right? Some of that language should be familiar to you, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Can we, maybe we can add whom he loved. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this time, it wasn't a ram caught in a thicket. This time, it was Jesus who was sacrificed on a cross. And the night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed earnestly for a different way. But he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. I wonder if Abraham prayed for a different way. I wonder if he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Belief in God collides with our actions, and both Abraham and Jesus were willing to do what was necessary, no matter what. And that's what brings us to our time of communion, does it not? We remember God's faithfulness to us, that while we were still sinners, he loved us so much that he sent his only son, whom he loved, to die for those sins. We remember the faithfulness of Jesus Christ willing to give up his own life, having the power of God in his hands, being able to call legions of angels out of heaven, and he still gave up his life. We remember the example of Rahab, the example of Abraham. In order to be faithful, we must believe in God and allow our actions to show it. Our song that we're going to sing is, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. As we think about these words and the faithfulness of God, I hope it transforms 
our lives. I hope that we can bear the fruit of faithfulness everywhere. We have three communion stations that are set up. As we sing that song, I invite you to go to one of these three stations and take the cups. Go back to your seat and reflect and sing with us. And then Dennis is going to come up and share a few words this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your faithfulness. I'm thankful that you're faithful even when I'm unfaithful. I'm thankful for the example of faithfulness. And Lord, my simple prayer is that you will transform each and every one of us to bear that fruit, the fruit of faithfulness, that our belief in you can collide with our actions, that we can be different than the world, that we can be different than what we think we should be and allow you to transform us. Oh, Lord, great is your faithfulness. We love you, and we sing these things to you today. In Jesus' name.